it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring. Over the years, I've interviewed some of the brightest minds and successful leaders in the world of supply chain management. In May 2020, I sat down with Ken Ackerman to learn more about him and collect a little supply chain management history. After our discussion, Ken told me about a similar interview he had with Dr. James Stock many years prior and the related work Dr. Stock was doing. In November 2020, I was able to catch up with Dr. James Stock to learn about his work. As an academic in the field of transportation, logistics, and now what we call supply chain management, Jim was well-connected to many of the original academic thought leaders in this space. Jim did interviews with many of these original thought leaders and shared them with me. The list includes Ken Ackerman, Don Bowersox, James Haskett, Bud Lalonde, John Langley Jr., Tom Menser, Tom Spee, and Daniel Wren. To carry on the great work started by Dr. Jim Stock, I'm dusting off these interviews and bringing them to you on Supply Chain is Boring. In England, everybody is taking in everybody else's wash, and that's where we could end up. If nobody's making anything in America anymore, we're just taking in each other's wash. Hope to see the day when we have a resurgence of manufacturing in America, which we've had in things like IT. Uh, and uh, to the extent that it's manufacturing, uh, the entertainment business, uh, television and film is very strong here. So we, we need to uh, develop more creativity and to develop union-free enterprises, which I think are healthier than those that are unionized. Okay. Now, what would you say are those excellent or very good changes that have taken place? Good changes today? Well, we, uh, we have gone global, and I think that's good. Very hard to go to war with people you're doing business with. And I think that the success in the logistics industry of FedEx and UPS of becoming true global service providers is wonderful. Uh, I think the example that Fred Smith set as an entrepreneur is inspirational. Uh, Even though you got a C on that uh, report. Yes, I love to tell that story <laughs> in, in workshops about the Yale professor who said that uh, he was would never work. Yeah, it would never, never work. work. The bankers said the same thing. Uh, but uh, I think globalization has been a very healthy thing, and my hope is that uh, my, that our country doesn't lose its edge that it has. I'm not at all worried about free trade because we're the winners on free trade, ultimately. A, a few people will lose their jobs, but a lot more will get jobs because of globalization. Now, related to that, with your background in uh, Latin American and your fluency in Spanish and, and uh, visiting there a lot, um, not a question I had prepared, but one which uh, it brings to mind. What is your perception of NAFTA in terms of its impact? Best thing that could possibly happen. And one of the wonderful things that I travel to Mexico a lot is the relative prosperity in Mexico compared to how it was 50 years ago. You will see more panhandlers in Columbus 
than you will in Monterey. Uh, I was vacationing in uh, the island of Cozumel off of the Yucatan Peninsula, and I asked a uh, house cleaning lady who was cleaning up our condominium, I said, well, tell me, is there a lot of unemployment here? And she just shot right back and said, only the drunks. <laughs> said everybody that, that can work has a job, and the ones that can't, that don't have a job aren't employable. But she came right back, you know, in quick answer. And and uh, I've been in Cozumel since. You don't see any poverty there. You never see any panhandlers or beggars. Uh, there must be a slum somewhere on that island, but I've never found it. Now, tourism did that, but the tourism uh, has somewhat been promoted, I think, by NAFTA and the relative prosperity of Mexico compared to what it was. And, of course, if if I could be king for a day, I would put a big tariff on imported oil and do it as quickly as possible and then allow, of course, through NAFTA, Canadian and Mexican petroleum to come in under the tariff and and let us buy all of our oil in North America. And, and send our money to our to our neighbors instead of to the Middle East. I think that the world would be a lot better off. And the day that the Mexicans don't have to come up here to get a job will be a happy day for everybody. And that could happen. Now, related to that, one of the issues that's been, I guess, on the front burners for at least a couple of years now have been. Mexican trucks on U.S. highways. Outrageous. This, of course, is the Teamsters Union. See, they don't care about the Canadian trucks because those guys are Teamsters. So that's nobody. Nobody in the press wants to talk about that. But that's that's where the issue is. The Teamsters want the Mexican non-union truckers out, and and I think it's a huge embarrassment to the United States that we've allowed this to happen. It's outrageous. If I were a Mexican, I would be furious. I'm not a Mexican. I'm still furious. It's unfair and, and unwarranted. Well, most of the discussion seems to be on safety issues. Yes, but that's a straw man. I mean, you, you go read about and look at Mexican trucks, and it's just, uh, I, think it, I think it's an excuse. Okay. So, Ken, let's ask some specific questions uh, what we've been asking thus far, with very few exceptions, have been uh, questions we've asked all those we've interviewed. We uh, wait until the end to start some specific questions specifically related to your career and interests and accomplishments. And the first one is, uh, and we've, you've briefly mentioned it, uh, the organizations that you've been involved with. Primarily, uh, the first one, NCPM. National Council of Physical Distribution Management, now CSCMP. Um, when you were first involved with that organization years and years ago, uh, did you have any vision that would be the type of organization it is now? I think I did. Uh, in my inaugural address, is not the it's too too fancy a word, but the talk that I prepared at the uh, annual meeting when I was named as president, 
I said I expect to see the day when we take the first letter national out. And I persuaded uh, our executive committee to have a meeting in Toronto with the Canadians. And that was ahead of its time. I got some pushback. Uh, one of our guys said, Ken, he said, my responsibilities are strictly within the U.S. My management won't won't support my running around the world. We're not ready for that. So I backed away. It was one of those cases where you're leading and you discover nobody's following. <laughs> so I backed away. But I certainly celebrated when the name change came and the N was dropped. And that had a whole lot to do with the growth. It was no longer the National Council. It just took the N out. And uh, That was in 1985. That's when correct. When it became Logistics Management. That's correct. Uh, in 2002, I was agitating, may not have been the first, but was early, in saying logistics is the old term, the new term is supply chain, and if you went to a cocktail party and you met a dentist or a psychiatrist and said, I'm a logistics manager, you'd probably have to keep talking because he'd say, well, what's that? But everybody knows what a chain is and everybody knows what supply means. And I said, you know, it really isn't that it's a great deal of difference. It's uh, I'm a wordsmith. And supply chain is better understood than logistics or physical distribution. People think they know what it means, and that's important. And Let me ask you a, a, a question just for your personal input. UPS now has uh, their new commercial, yeah. relatively new, yeah. which is using the logistics song. I know. And they didn't uh, use a supply chain. So yes. What do you think about that? Well... It's better than their, their old idea of, of trying to sell a color, brown, which I thought was idiotic. Uh, uh, I, I don't care which term they use, they're doing a great service to all of us in the field to create awareness of the business we're in. So I love it. It's probably... Some songwriter said, I can do more with logistics than I can with supply chain. You never know what Madison Avenue will do. <clears throat> but uh, UPS is a company that has great management. Uh, I might add great vertical mobility. Uh, vice presidents who started as freight handlers. And lots of money to tell their story. So I wish them well, and I don't care what term they use. If they get the public acquainted with it, it's a win for all of us. Okay. Now, we also mentioned in uh, summarizing your background, another organization which was formed after NCPDM that was WORK, where Housing Education Research Council. You were one of the founding members. That's true. Um, How did you get involved, obviously, being in warehousing? Well, that's a strange thing, and I never went through the chairs of work. never really wanted to, and I saw a lot of people who wanted to more than I did. Uh, but it was a strange thing. I had at least two people pestering me on the telephone saying, uh, 
I'd like to go, it was still called American Warehouse Association then, it's what's now called IWLA, the Trade Association for Public Warehouses. He said, well, I'd like to go to that convention, and I've called Chicago, and they said, well, you're welcome to come down and play golf or sit by the swimming pool, but we won't let you into our sessions because those are secret. And, uh, and these two guys were needling me about this, and I said, that's just the silliest thing I ever heard of in my life. I said, there isn't anything that should be secret or is worth being secret. So uh, I had a series of visits with two academics at this institution. One's no longer with us, Jim Robeson, and the other, our friend Bud Lalonde. And we, shooting the breeze over breakfast, said, why couldn't we just have an association that welcomes everybody in warehousing, not just the public warehouse crowd, but everybody, and kind of model it after NCPDM? And then I called my friend George Jackowitz, who said, that's a great idea. I'll support that. I think it's wonderful. Uh, then I ran into another guy who's no longer with us, one of the founders, Burr Hupp, who was at the founding of NCPDM, and in his inimitable style, he said, Ken, it's never going to happen with a bunch of guys uh, yakking about it over breakfast. It's only going to happen when one guy gets on the telephone and, and gets a, one or two dozen of his best friends to come and sit down and talk about it. He said, I think you're the guy who has to do that. And I saluted and said, yes, sir, and did it. <laughs> but Burr was sort of the gray eminence behind who was telling me how to do it. And... Uh, we got 12 or 15 people to the airport Holiday Inn in Columbus, you know, come in at 10 and we'll be done at 2 sort of thing, you fly in and out same day, and the rest is history. It stuck. But one of the things we did in that initial meeting, deliberately, is we invited a board member from NCPDM, uh, that was Bob Delaney, and we invited a board member from the Warehouse Association, and that was a fellow by the name of Rod Lamoth from Kansas City. And we said, go back to your group and tell them that they could change things so that we never had another meeting. If NCPDM would have a warehousing division and have part of its conference devoted to warehousing, then we don't need this. And then go back to the Warehouse Association and say, if you would open up your sessions to uh, shippers, to private warehouse operators, to customers, then we don't need this. So you two guys have the ability to make sure that we never meet again. <laughs> we were pretty sure what would happen. But we thought, it, and this I think was Burr's idea, that we're not plotting a revolution. We're inviting everybody into the tent and saying, here's what we want to do. If you want to stop us, please stop us. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, I was very sure what would happen with NCPDM because George Jackowitz was saying there is room in the world for a warehouse organization. We shouldn't be it. It's, it's a good thing to do. Uh, let's Let's uh, assume that it's a great idea. Not everybody on his board agreed with that. Fortunately, most of them did. 
Now, Tisha, you mentioned, at least from my perspective, uh, one of two people that probably had the most significant impact on warehousing, yourself and Burr Hupp. Yes. But the only difference is you don't wear the loud jackets that Burr Hupp wore. Uh, <laughs> loud shirts, but not jackets. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, what was your opinion of, uh, of Burr Hupp? I stood in awe of Burr Hupp. He was a fantastic leader. He was a great communicator. Uh, somebody, academic friend of mine, said he would have made a great Roman general. He said he looked like a Roman general. <laughs> it was very, very persuasive. And, and you just sort of wanted to salute and say, yes, sir, whenever he said anything. The my first and only job for work was to to chair its first general conference because I had chaired a conference for NCPDM, which we had here on this campus in the Fawcett Center at Ohio State. I had no idea who'd come, whether anybody'd come. There was there was no history. You know, we were building with no history. In the evening before the conference, uh, I think a few people got together for dinner, and Burr started after me. He said, you mean you didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and, and this third thing you neglected to do? He said, what were you doing anyway? <laughs> but that was Burr. You know, he, he, he was a domineering, in the best sense, a dominant personality. I, I had a huge regard for him. And like you, he was involved in the profession for many years. Yes, indeed. Many years. Now, you mentioned uh, in general background that uh, the one gentleman who uh, influenced you significantly to write about what you did. Yes. Um, how did that go from articles for trade journals and magazines to books? Well, I think I have to give Princeton some credit for that, that I had to turn in a 40,000-word thesis when I was a college senior. And I found out that, you know, you take bites, take, go after the elephant one bite at a time. You don't write a book. You write a bunch of chapters. And so I wasn't intimidated by the idea of producing a book. It never worried me as something that was too big or too hard because I had done it at a tender age and I knew that it was doable. But typically people don't write multiple books. You've written multiple books. Or you could say I wrote the same one over and over <laughs> again with different titles. Uh, I think that each one gets to, to some extent easier than the last because you have experience. And to some extent, my writing today is to some extent anthologies in that when I produce a book, uh, we go back in through all 25 years of newsletters and say, well, you know, we could take this article, it would fit really nicely into Chapter 12. And you start out, of course, with the outline. That's the hardest part, deciding what you're going to cover and how many buckets you're going to have. Uh, but uh, when you have a lot of writing in the bank, I think you can recycle some of it. Uh, it. You have to be careful how you do that so it doesn't look recycled, but it isn't all reinventing the wheel at all. So other than revisions, what's the next uh, Ken Ackerman book? Well, our, our uh, 
third edition of Warehousing Profitably is almost done, I think will be available uh, around the first of the year. And uh, it's a major revision because the the uh, last one is very badly out of date, so we have a whole lot of new stuff. And the things that aren't done are the real fun jobs like getting the index made and that sort of thing and, get, and getting in and I use self-publishing so I'll have to go have the typeset and uh, you know make get a printing contract and so forth uh, the book is basically done and uh, I continue of course to turn out my monthly newsletter every month and uh, the other books that we have that are fairly new will probably go to revision. I'm not thinking of any, not yet planning any sexy historical novels or anything like that. <laughs> any other writing I, be, I do is probably going to be <clears throat> similar to the last. So you have no thoughts of writing another precipice book? That no, I was on that committee. That was <laughs> a lot of fun. And, and I will add, sheepishly, that I was a promoter of what turned out to be a really bum decision for the council to be self-published with a business novel. That was a bad decision. I wish I'd never suggested it. It was we, an interesting book, though. It was, but it was a commercial failure because we didn't have a publisher. We, and, and we didn't know how to market a novel. So, uh, But I was sort of agitating because my experience with self-publishing had been very good. I said, we don't need a publisher. If if we get uh, every third person in the council to buy a copy, we'll have a commercial success. But we didn't do that. <laughs> so, uh, is there is there a leadership book on the horizon, perhaps? For me, I keep writing articles about leadership, but no, I don't think so, because I don't know how to market it. I think I know how to write it, but I don't know how to market it. And my experience with big publishers has been uh, unfortunate. I, I had a very good experience early with Traffic Service Corporation, which is the place where George once worked. And I forget what it morphed into something else, but you know, it was dealing with the president of the company. They were great to work with. I've had some other experiences that I don't want to talk about that were that got me a little sour on the publishing industry. Good. Now, excluding yourself, uh, who do you think has made the most significant lifetime contributions to warehousing? Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. I wish I had thought about that before you asked it. Uh, okay, Gene uh, Gagnon, the late Gene Gagnon, was the first person, I think, to convince the public warehouse industry that they could take an engineering approach to rate making and to figure out accurately what their costs were. There was a, a warehousing guy in Detroit who was something of a practical joker 
who invited his customers into a little room when he had a, had a crystal ball and a Ouija board. And he said, this is our room where we develop rates. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was pretty primitive. Uh, people, would they'd call each other and say, uh, how much are you charging R.J. Reynolds so I can figure out how much to charge him? Never how much does it cost, just what can we get away with? Uh, the customers took advantage of the, of the ignorance of the suppliers. People lost money and didn't even know why or where or how. Uh, Ganyan's emphasis on engineering was marvelous, and it's a legacy that's carried forward. Uh, Maida Napolitano has done some of the much more recent work on engineering approaches to warehousing. And I think that she is a brilliant writer, a very good communicator, somebody whose first language is Tagalog. She's a Philippine lady. So her first language isn't even English, but she writes about engineering in a way that I can understand, which is a major accomplishment. So, But I think that Napolitano is carrying on the legacy of Ganyan who was a great communicator and a brilliant engineer. So I think that's the first person I think of. Is so tied in with something you said earlier, um, you were very grateful that your degree at Princeton was not in business. Yes. Um, this uh, woman whose background is engineering. Yes. Um, do you think that a lot of the contributions that have been most significant in your discipline uh, and in logistics supply chain have come from non-logistics supply chain warehousing people, at least historically? I'm not sure. We have to face the fact that this is a very new profession. Uh, when I was a student, uh, there weren't any courses in logistics. I don't think there were any courses in physical distribution. They hadn't gotten there yet. Uh, when NCPDM was formed in the early 1960s, there were very few people out there with coursework doing that. Tiny number. Uh, when Jim Heskett was on this campus, uh, he was a transportation professor. Uh, you know, the, the, the people who started teaching this are all mostly still here and with us, which shows us how young the field is. So I think it's natural that people came in from outside. Uh, I don't imagine that Burr Hupp, if I'm sure, knowing how old he would be if he were alive today, he didn't study logistics or physical distribution, didn't exist. He was just a very good learner and a very good communicator. So it is a, it's a new business, and that's what makes it fun. Always new. So, Ken, what do you think uh, today is the most uh, important issue facing warehousing, logistics, and supply chain management practitioners? I think adapting to a global economy, uh, facing the fact that uh, goods in distribution being moved around are not just being moved around the United States and being moved around the world in both directions, and that uh, the places that they're being moved to will keep changing. Uh, you know, great emphasis on China today, 
I think some of that could swing back to Latin America. Some of it could move to Mongolia, Lower Slavovia, who knows? You know, it's it's a constant change as we progress with a global economy. Now, it's interesting. Um, when Bud Alon and Paul Zinzer wrote their uh, book for NCPDM on customer service, meaning and measurement, 1976. I have the book still on my bookshelf. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Hang on. I don't know how that happened. I'll start from the beginning of that question. I don't know why that popped out of there. I didn't do anything to deserve that. Okay. So I'll start that question. Yeah, you were talking about uh, Lalonde and Zinzer customer yeah. service. Yeah. Now, Ken, uh, interestingly, with the, the global issues being important, customer service, which, as you know, Bud Lalonde and Paul Zinzer wrote the book for the Council or NCPM in 1976 called Customer Service, Meaning, and Measurement. With security issues and uncertainty issues, do you think customer service is one of those things that will have to suffer as a result of that, even though that's been the focus of warehousing, logistics, and supply chain management? Your question is, will security issues hurt customer service? I don't think so. If that, Do I have the question yes. right? Okay. They're different issues. Uh, you know, customer service involves simply uh, communicating with your customer and figuring out what you need to do to help him. Uh, the security problem, which has certainly come to our attention in the last few days with the uh, attempt to send explosives in from Yemen to the United States, is a major issue. But my feeling is that we will figure out how to control those. We, we will keep figuring it out. And that they, I don't think that the two, that one has to impact the other. They're both challenges. Uh, I think a bigger question of customer service is how do you please customers across cultural barriers where they don't speak the same language, don't have the same expectations? That's a bigger challenge. How about sustainability? We're seeing, for example, that container ships are slowing down speed, so it's taking longer uh, to get products. Uh, um, now, you can be 100% consistent with longer steaming yes. times, but True. in terms of the service level being shorter, the order cycle time being shorter, that's not going to happen. I find the slow steaming to be a bizarre situation. <clears throat> I can't believe it saves any money. Uh, they, they save a little money on fuel, but they must pay that crew. So, so the, I can't believe the fuel costs more than the people. So I think that the slow steaming is a temporary strategy to create a shortage of shipping capacity and that a year from now it will be over. Uh, uh, I don't think it's, it's a permanent situation because it doesn't make economic sense. So as a man who's been... Um, an expert, a guru, Mr. Warehousing, uh, so to speak. Uh, uh, what do you believe is the future of warehousing and supply chain management as we move forward? Well, it's always going to be here. It always has been. Through the earliest of history, there's been writing about the importance of storing stuff going all the way back to the Bible and the 
and the nightmares of the pharaoh and so forth and building of storehouses in Egypt. So it's always, it's been here throughout recorded history and it always will be. Uh, as we globalize, we it become more and more of a global economy, uh, warehousing will change far faster in China or Mongolia than it does here. You mentioned sustainability. Uh, my friend Richard Murphy in uh, Minneapolis, who both heads a warehousing business and is also a uh, professor of landscape architecture, predicts that a growing number of warehouses will have live roofs, plants on the roof, uh, and has done some miraculous things with landscaping for sustainability in the public warehouse business where I'm sure his relatives who own part of the company don't want Mr. Murphy to waste their money, so what he does has to have a payback. So warehousing will get more sustainable without losing its economic value. Murphy has proven that, and others will discover it. Uh, I think that maybe one of the most exciting change situations in materials handling is robotics. And my friends at Genco in Pittsburgh, I think, are leaders in the development of robotics uh, with some amazing experiments uh, with uh, vehicles that have nobody on them. There's a warehouse in the east side of this city, the folks don't want to be identified and I would respect that that has conventional forklift trucks running around with no nobody on them uh, we will never see in my opinion the lights out warehouse that the journalists like to write about there will always be some people but there will be less of them and many of the routine jobs will be done with robots so Robotics, globalization, sustainability, all will be moving rapidly as we move ahead. I think we may also discover new ways of putting up buildings that are more economical, perhaps more sustainable. But right now, with an overhang of existing space, I don't think most people are worried about putting up new buildings. Now, Ken, as we close our, uh, this uh, interview session, is there anything we haven't discussed or would you like to make any kind of summary or closing statement to the audience? No, other than to observe that I think the supply chain business is going to be a whole lot more fun in the next 20 years than it was in the last 20. I sometimes wish I could turn the clock back to be part of it, and without any regrets, though, about the fun I have had in it, I think that the field will be far more international. Uh, it will have continuing change and, I think, continuing growth. So I think it's a good place to be. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. Interested in sponsoring this show or others to help you get your message out? Send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. You can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring.